Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Peter Rose. I'm the editor of Australian Book Review, and welcome to this uh, um, this session with uh, historian Alan Atkinson. A couple of housekeeping notes: if you would please switch off your mobile phones, it's always a bit distracting for speakers if they go off. And uh, we are uh, uh, Sydney Ideas. This is a Sydney Ideas event with Australian Book Review. Uh, is tweeting uh, tonight. So those of you who know how to do that, um, feel free to, to follow that, that separate conversation. We are gathered, of course, on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge them as the traditional owners and pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and to the elders of other communities in Australia. Australian Book Review um, enjoys close ties with this university, and I always take these opportunities to thank uh, Professor Barbara Kane, Dean of Arts and Social Sciences, for enabling me to spend time on the campus, as I occasionally do, most recently for a week in August, spreading the word about what the magazine has to offer and commissioning articles and reviews from staff and postgraduate students, including happily several people in the room. Um, it's always a pleasure to work with uh, Sydney Ideas, this remarkable public program that your university offers, and I want to thank my colleague Meredith Hall. Always a pleasure working with you, Meredith. This is our third major event uh, with Sydney Ideas this year. Early last month, on a particularly stormy night, I seem to recall, we were treated to a memorable conversation between ABR laureate David Malouf and his chosen ABR fellow, Sydney poet Michael Aiken. Tonight we're here to celebrate the work of another Australian Book Review fellow, the, the inaugural ABR Raft fellow, just to abbreviate, um, we're fond of acronyms at, uh, at Australian Book Review, Professor Alan Atkinson, who has used his fellowship awarded earlier this year to produce a superb essay titled, How Do We Live With Ourselves? Australia's National Conscience, which appears in full uh, in the September issue of Australian Book Review on sale tonight. And I know that many of you subscribe to the magazine. And if you want more information about how you can do that, there is, there's a flyer on your seat. And um, of course, you can go to our website for information about how to do that inexpensively. Before we hear from Alan Atkinson, a very few words about Australian Book Review, if I may. Uh, many of you are aware that much has happened at ABR in recent years. We enjoy partnerships, new partnerships around the country, including the one with the University of Sydney. We offer three lucrative international prizes, including the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, now open until December the 1st for any poets in the room, and worth a total of $7,500. We offer a series of writers' fellowships, each now worth $7,500. We have branched out in a, in a strategic way to cover all the arts now through Arts Update. Cultural philanthropy has transformed the magazine as it has benefited 
innumerable arts organizations around the country, and indeed innumerable universities, one might add. Generous donations from almost 500 donors and ABR patrons have enabled us to add these new programs and to increase our payments to writers at a time when paid work is at a premium for freelance reviewers and creative writers. So I want to take this opportunity to thank my fellow um, ABR patrons. ABR is grateful to all of you, as are many Australian writers. On your seat, you will find information about this patrons program. If you want more information or are considering becoming a patron, please speak to me at the conclusion of this session. Uh, we love welcoming new patrons to the magazine. From time to time, ABR partners with philanthropic found foundations, and so it is in this case. I was delighted when my friend and fellow ABR patron, Mr. Steve Christie, present tonight, sounded us out late last year about a possible partnership intended to promote greater awareness of the role and significance of religion in society and culture. Funding this new fellowship, worth, as I say, $7,500, is the Religious Advancement Foundation Trust. And here I want to thank the three directors, Chris Kerrin, Tim Mitchell, and Steve Christie. And uh, very happily announce that, just decided, um, the, uh, the ABR Raft Fellowship will be repeated next year. As you know, Australian Book Review is in no respect, um, politically or otherwise, a proselytising publication. When the fellowship was duly advertised, we welcomed and received applications from writers and commentators of all faiths, as intended, and indeed no faiths, in what proved to be one of our largest and most impressive fields for the 20 or so ABR fellowships we have awarded to date. However, Alan Atkinson's um, proposal um, uh, stood out uh, to myself and my fellow, the, 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 the other people who assessed the, the applications, and Alan was chosen as the fellow earlier this year. From ABR's point of view, and I think I can say from Alan Atkinson's, this has been a superb creative venture, and we are most grateful to Raft for making it possible. I'll introduce our guest speaker shortly, but first, Philippa McGuinness, executive publisher at New South Publishing, will tell us about the completion of a project dear to my heart too, the three volume, The Europeans in Australia by Alan Atkinson, of which I had the good fortune to publish the first volume almost 20 years ago. Philippa McGuinness is the publisher of the new complete edition of this classic of Australian history. Philippa McGuinness. Thank you. I have some very weighty props, as you can see. 
I would be very happy to have the opportunity to stand in front of an audience at any time and heap praise on Alan Atkinson's three-volume Europeans in Australia. So I'm particularly grateful to Peter Rose and the ABR and Sydney Ideas for giving me the opportunity to do so tonight. Thank you too for the co-op bookshop for coming along and supporting ABR and New South Publishing. But it does feel that it's particularly fitting to share these few words with you tonight because, as Peter mentioned, he himself published volume one of this trilogy decades ago when he was publisher at Oxford University Press. I became aware of the books, and indeed Alan himself then, at first because they won so many of the literary and history prizes that were on offer at the time. And it was very disappointing for many of my authors, I worked at Cambridge University Press at the time, that Alan kept, Alan's book kept winning the prizes. Yet there was a general agreement that in fact Australian history was the winner because these were important, ambitious books that encouraged us to think about our history differently. So if we fast forward a decade or two to the mid-2000s when Alan and I found ourselves on the Humanities and Creative Arts Assessment Panel of the Australian Research Council. Anyone here who's been involved in this kind of work will know that it takes many, many hours of reading and assessment of proposals, including meetings in Canberra that go for days. So Alan and I spent quite a bit of time together over the years. And during this time, of course, I asked him how volume three was coming along, mentioning along the way that Oxford University Press must have been very excited about the um, imminent arrival of the third book. And I'm sure that Alan won't mind me saying that um, he confessed that volume three, in fact, was not moving so quickly. But even worse, the OUP had decided not to offer him a contract for it. Of course, Peter had left by that time. So knowing an opportunity when I see one, I was delighted that we at UNSW Press were able to offer Alan a contract for volume three. And the rest, of course, is history, but not fast-moving history. But I never saw passing time as a problem because I knew that volume three would be worth waiting for. And indeed it was, as Alan told the story of the emergent nation in ways that were original and sometimes surprising. His themes of literacy, accent, listening, of what he called brain work, all prompt us to, to think about the lead up to federation in exciting new ways. Beyond that, we see World War I and its impact afresh. And it's relevant to point out tonight that religion also featured in all the books in illuminating ways. Readers, and I hasten to add judging committees for prizes, also agreed. And you can see on volume three, Democracy, there are some lovely stickers there, which um, are testament to, to Alan's work. I had always wanted to reissue the complete trilogy. Um, volumes one had been out of print for a long time. So I wanted to reissue them as a set. And this involved redesigning jackets and retypesetting the text, although perhaps disappointingly, we decided not to include the illustrations that were in the first two volumes. In a kind of a technological quirk, the digital files from volume one could not be deciphered. Oh, sorry, they could be deciphered, but those from volume two, which came later, could not. 
So this time, the delayed appearance of the first two volumes, which did not coincide with the first publication of volume three in 2014, was the publisher's battle rather than the author's. But this year, we finally got there, and the three volumes are available in print and electronic formats, down the back of the room, as it turns out. This all makes the publication process sound as monumental as the books themselves. It wasn't, and I would rather focus on the work rather than the production of it. But there are some achievements as a publisher that can make you feel very proud. And for me and my colleagues at UNSW Press, New South Publishing, this is one of them. Reading Alan's raft essay in the current ABR, and his essay is called How Do We Live With Ourselves? It reminded me of the profound strengths of this trilogy of books. Alan's willingness, which is less frequent among historians than you might think, to write about conscience and consciousness with a deep empathy for his historical subjects. His ability too, never heavy-handed, but always there to unravel the ways in which the past bears down on the present. So for those of you who haven't read the essay or all of the books or any of the books, you have unique treats in store. And I'm honoured to be able to publicly congratulate Alan Atkinson on this achievement. Thank you. Thank you, Philippa. And unique treats they are that await Await you. And um, just a, a, a postscript to that, um, had I still been at OUP in the early uh, in 2010, long after I left, there was no way it would not, uh, Alan would not have been offered a, a, a contract. But uh, publishing houses' um, um, directions uh, change, and that was the, the betterment of New South, New South Publishing, which has done a beautiful job with this new edition. Uh, Professor Mark McKenna, present tonight, reviewed volume three for Australian Book Review in our November 2014 issue. Mark said in part, mighty, a word now rarely used in everyday speech, is one that Alan Atkinson employs often. It is also a word that aptly describes his accomplishment in completing a work of such originality and vision as the Europeans in Australia. Interestingly to me, Mark went on to say, in Europe and the United States, comparable soul-authored histories would be considered a major cultural event and the subject of extensive intellectual debate across the wider literary culture. Yet in Australia, Atkinson's The Europeans in Australia is barely known outside the historical profession. And that, I think, is... Uh, a depressing uh, reality and one that I hope the event tonight, this important essay and the new edition will rectify. So now we all have an opportunity to appreciate the scale and importance of Alan Atkinson's achievement in the Europeans in Australia in this new and inexpensive edition. Copies are on sale tonight, as Philippa has mentioned, and Alan Atkinson at the conclusion of the talk will be signing copies of the books and, I hope, of the September issue of Australian Book Review. Alan Atkinson is a graduate of Sydney University, Dublin and ANU. 
26 years, he taught at the University of New England, where he was when I first went up there to meet him and commission the book. And he has lately been senior tutor uh, at St Paul's College, Sydney University. His books have won countless awards. Camden, Farm and Village Life in Early New South Wales appeared in 1988 and I think carried off the Victorian Premier's Prize. Volume one of the Europeans uh, appeared in 1997 and won a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Volume two followed in 2004, also published by OUP. And volume three, as we know, won the overall, the big one, Victorian Prize for Literature. Please welcome Alan Atkinson. Thank you very much. It's a great honour indeed to be able to, to be asked to give this talk and I'm very grateful to the Australian Book Review, especially Peter Rose, to the founders of Raft, the Raft Fellowship and to the History Department and to Sydney Ideas and I'm very grateful too to, to Philippa. Um, Peter in the first place um, is uh, publishing the first volume and then Philippa and the University of New South Wales Press follow publishing the third volume. Um, I, I, I frequently felt mighty grateful to both of them, I must say, for their patience, and particularly Philippa's patience over, I think, 10 years, and uh, very grateful for the final job, which I must, and, and the republishing of the three volumes, and in particular, not only to producing them in such an elegant way, but also making them look, the first ones look so much fatter than they had in the original edition. So. <laughs> I do look more weighty from that regard, in that regard. Now, obviously, I'm an historian, and it might seem strange and presumptuous for me to be offering remarks on difficult issues in the present, including the workings of national conscience. But the topic now that interests me most as an historian is conscience. Um, a lot of the stuff in the past I've, that I've written in the past is an effort to see how men and women have made sense of their world how they organise their understanding and make judgments, and how they do that by themselves and in correspondence with others. So this talk is an early venture into a new aspect of all that. And again, I'm very grateful for, for, the, for the opportunity to, to force myself to write that essay in order to, to give myself a new, uh, a new start, as it were. It's an attempt to pin down useful ways of talking about conscience as a subject of continuing interest is something that makes all the difference to lives, both past and present. And what I have to say is, is an attempt to look a bit further into some of the questions raised in the essay uh, that I, that's just been published, as Peter says, in the September issue of the Australian Book Review. So I should say something first about that essay and to try to sum up what it tries, sum at least of what it tries to do. In the first place, both here and there, I'm using the term national conscience in a fairly narrow way. By national conscience, I don't mean just a general sense of shame or guilt among a large, large or leading part or a more particularly articulate part of the national population. I'm not much concerned with feelings for their own sake or even moral judgment for its own sake. For present purposes, shame or guilt are not enough to constitute conscience. Conscience comes into existence, so I say, for present purposes, when those feelings are linked to an active sense of responsibility and to the determination to do something. And of course, there has to be some real, practical, and immediate way 
of carrying that determination through. And all these things have to be there. For instance, if there's no will, of course nothing happens. Feeling shallows out, capacity doesn't last long, and the machinery stands still. National conscience then has to involve national government. There has to be a national machinery transforming judgment into action. And it has to run over years, drawing steadily on the national conscience. For it to be real and effective, it has to be habitual. Relevant moral judgment has to be the heart of the ongoing bureaucracy. It has to be an expression of national character. Civilization can hardly exist without hypocrisy, but whatever the lapses, all this has to shape conversations in corridors of power so as to be unavoidable from day to day. It's this basic bit of machinery, the active element of national conscience, which seems to have failed so badly in Australia and maybe in other countries more or less at present. So that's what this essay is attempting to talk about. I don't say very much about the refugee crisis itself, but obviously the question of the offshore treatment of refugees is the trigger for the whole discussion at present. In fact, the definition I've just given is very obviously linked to that crisis because it'd be hard to imagine an issue of conscience dealing more neatly and inevitably, depending more neatly and inevitably on the ongoing decisions of government. The essay in ABR says more about race relations within Australia than about refugees, and especially from an historical point of view, because I think that subject helps to put current issues in a useful perspective. There are some telling comparisons with the way things are working or not working now. For instance, from the 1970s to about 2005, there was a good deal of public conversation about the violence suffered by the indigenous people as a result of the British invasion of Australia. This was the so-called history wars. The great Australian historian Geoffrey Blaney used the term black armband history as a way of characterising those who mourned, as some thought too, too ostentatiously, the sufferings of the past. Those who can remember back that far will, will recall the efforts of John Howard as then Prime Minister to disentangle the national government from the demands thus made upon it. At bottom, the discussion turned on the question as to how far some of us, including scholars in the field, had a right to impose a regime of feeling on everyone else. So it was said, especially in the Murdoch press, that to feel too much, or at least too insistently, was to be guilty of moral vanity. It was to be a moral poseur, a compassionista. And obviously all this is directly relevant to any understanding of national conscience. For anyone interested in Australian history, the Australian history wars helped to pinpoint two quite separate but related questions. First, was the British invasion beginning in 1788 justified? Was it even an invasion? Secondly, whether it was justified or not, what about the brutality of the inland frontier, which was one result of invasion and which lasted from the late 18th century to the early 20th? It was possible to wonder about the rights and wrongs or maybe the inevitability of invasion, but from a moral point of view, the frontier question was much more confronting. In fact, most of the angst of the history wars focused on whether the frontier had been all that brutal. No one seems to have doubted that if massacres had happened to the extent that many of the experts suggested, then undoubtedly there was something profoundly evil in the Australian past. 
but some said they hadn't really been so bad. A good deal was written to that effect, though in fact never as much as was promised. There was a second retort. However bad they might have been, it was all very much in the past so that it couldn't affect us now. No one living today at whatever level of authority could have had any, any direct responsibility for frontier suffering even as late as the 1920s and 30s. Linked to this was the idea that the experts, though they might have PhDs and whatever else, were not really experts because real experts know that historical understanding is a matter of rational, quasi-scientific inquiry and has nothing to do with feeling or conscience. And there was some interesting writing about that. The current arguments about offshore refugees are a little like a replay of the history wars. There's some telling parallels and telling differences. Again, there are two separate but related questions. Parallel with the question of British invasion, now there's the large and slippery matter of regulating refugee traffic by sea. And then, matching more or less the question of brutality on the inland frontier, a secondary question, but more confronting, there's the question of conditions on Australia's ocean frontier in the refugee camps. Again, a glaringly simple moral issue. As with the frontier massacres, it would be useful to be able to argue that the camps aren't as bad as the experts suggest. And it would be useful to be able to argue that, even if they are, it's a long way away in someone else's business. And again, genuine expertise shouldn't be shaped by feeling or conscience. The Prime Minister, for one, used this logic, as in his statement, we cannot be misty-eyed about this. We must have secure borders, and we do and we will. But who knows what expertise is anyway? I'm reminded of the statement by one of the leading advocates of, the ye of yes in the Brexit vote as follows. I think people in this country have had enough of experts. I'm not going to follow the ins and outs of these various possibilities. I've got enough here, I think, to give me, get me back to the question of the national conscience as a general idea and as an idea which needs to be better understood. There is, in fact, another retort possible this time and it focuses on the question of belonging. Debate about the old inland frontier involved people who all, without question, belonged here, despite being on what Henry Reynolds called the other side of the frontier. The refugee question, on the other hand, involves people who, cannot be, who can be said not to belong. From one point of view, the whole point is to stop them belonging. And that's really pivotal. The ref refugee question has exposed belonging as a central element of conscience, including national conscience. The fortunes of conscience, including national conscience, depend on the way people, we could say a people, our people, people of this country, think about the way they belong. So, belonging is a complicated matter, easy to feel but hard to pin down in all its ramifications. In the essay, I say a good deal about William Wilberforce, the great anti-slavery campaigner, born 1759, died 1833. I argue that Wilberforce invented the idea of a national conscience. He was able to do this, so I would say, because, of the, because he thought in a particularly useful way about belonging. Wilberforce was fundamentally concerned with the relationship between those who belonged in a national sense and those who didn't. And belonging was possible at two levels. We could belong at what Wilberforce called a decently selfish level, just doing our more obvious duties from day to day, or we, we could belong more fully by joining in a great collective moral effort, by being part of a national personality, 
a personality with conscience. We did that collectively, always collectively, by looking outward from our own feeling of membership across boundaries to those who were adrift, who suffered because of their failure to belong or because the way they belonged was not good enough. The most urgent example for him, of course, were the men and women who'd been carried from Africa by sea, whose ancestors had been carried as slaves. According to Wilberforce, to be part of that single moral personality was genuine patriotism. In his case, of course, that meant British patriotism. Wilberforce's argument is not detailed, well-connected and explicit. It has to be pieced together from his writings and his public activities. But he certainly understood the moral implications of empire building, such as the British were doing at that point more successfully than ever before. He argued in the strongest possible terms that in gathering power abroad, and I quote, in defiance alike of conscience and reputation, we, that it is the British nation, industriously and perseveringly continue to deprave and darken the great the creation of God. By talking of we, Wilberforce was describing, or in some, some sense creating, a single moral entity, a personality on the international stage. Wilberforce defined patriotism as, quote, that quality which, without shutting up our philanthropy within the narrow bounds of a single kingdom, yet attaches us in particular to the country to which we belong. That's a paradox, a feeling genuinely free and expansive, so he said, binds us more closely to our roots. For Wilberforce, that paradox was fundamental. It obviously owed something to the paradoxes of the New Testament, which he knew well, such as, whoever would, would be first must be slave of all, the meek shall inherit the earth, and whoever finds his life will lose it. Other religiously inclined writers show the same addiction to paradox. In T.S. Eliot's Little Gidding, for instance, there are the famous lines, the end of all our exploring will be to arrive at the place we started and know the place for the first time. But none of this, in fact, is necessarily religious. Sayings like these go beyond religion. There's a great article by Justin Clemens in the current issue of The Monthly about poetry and politics as matters of equal overlapping paradox. In this case, the author quotes W.B. Yeats. Love's pleasure drives man's love away. The painter's brush consumes his dreams. With similar equally fundamental contradiction, says Clemens, there is, quote, no politics without division, no politics without a yearning for unity, no justice without commonality, no justice without difference. I don't think I'm wandering too far afield here. Paradoxes like these are not just whimsical and entertaining. They have enormous driving power. Thanks to the Christian heritage, they're fundamental to, the, to Western thinking, but in some form or other, of course, they're universal. What Wilberforce did then in the great argument of his life and writings was to pick up some of the sharp-edged poetry of the Christian message so, so as to push it back into everyday life including national politics, and national politics was, of course, his day job. And everyday life is where such paradoxes come from in the first place. Wilberforce's paradox expanding, expanded biblical proposals from an individual to a collective and national level. Whether from an humanitarian or a theological point of view, that looks like a seriously original step. By another paradox, 
He drew on the universal humanitarianism of the Enlightenment, of which he was obviously a product, so as to add something essential to modern nationalism and to the idea that nations themselves might have a distinctive social character, a personality and a need for self-respect. And here I can quote from another recent statement by Richard Flanagan. Again, Flanagan was talking about the treatment of offshore refugees, and I quote, there is such a thing as a people's honour, he said, and when it's lost, the people are lost. If out, only out of self-respect, we sh should never have allowed this, allowed to happen what has. I think maybe national conscience is a better term than a people's honour, but it amounts to much the same thing. Both Wilberforce and Flanagan imply that the collective conscience or honour is crucial in underpinning the national sense of self and sense of direction. It does what individual conscience, honour or self-respect does for the individual. And again, it's governments which are ultimately responsible for getting these arrangements right at the national level. Good leaders at any level are supposed to have some kind of instinctive judgment when it comes to the mysterious complications of humanity. Note that none of this is about abolishing boundaries. According to the teaching which Wilberforce subscribed to, boundaries are fundamental to humanity. A good sense of self is impossible without them because from the moment of birth, the only useful reflections of humanity come from beyond boundaries, the boundaries of the body, the natural reach of intelligence, imagination and common association. For Wilberforce, that was the fundamental message of Christianity, the main point of the parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance. Wilberforce packed a lot into his use of the word selfish. There's a critical connection here, of course, to all the late 20th century writing about the other, with a capital O. I don't know that literature well enough. The two sets of ideas overlap, but they don't in any sense have the same moral dynamic. The process of othering is a process of opposition, alienation and suppression. Under that rubric, discrimination always means negative discrimination. Its flip side is universalism, the breaking down of boundaries so as to create an undiscriminating international citizenship. That leaves an infinity of room for individual conscience. But note that it doesn't leave much room for national attachment, national self-respect and national conscience for the kind of patriotism Wilberforce valued so much. The idea of international citizenship might seem to reinforce Wilberforce's logic. In fact, it tends to disable it. It enfeebles Richard Flanagan's argument about a people's honour. What can a people's honour mean without some kind of distinctive national pride, without some sense of passing difference, some sense of the other? It all comes back to the vexed question of belonging. The whole thing, too, is complicated in the way national character, as it was once understood, has been replaced by national identity. There's nothing dynamic about identity. It's just an image or a self-image. It's a jigsaw. An honour and conscience, even belonging, can't be anything more than parts of it. It's static, as I understand it. Identity might be deeply felt. It can be built up and it can be attacked and undermined, but it doesn't move, except for the way it flickers on Facebook. Othering and identity seem to be part of the same package. Wilberforce and Flanagan are talking about character, the movement of muscle, the impulse within, the dynamic narrative of inner lives, inner selves, plus entanglement with the outside world on an individual scale, 
but on a national scale too. Towards the end of the essay in ABR, the argument begins to become somewhat apocalyptic. There's a quotation from Stan Grant where, in searing terms, he points to something radically wrong with the Australian dream because it suppressed his, oppressed his people. Building on that, my essay makes the following suggestion, and I quote, It's not just the Australian dream, but the driving ideas of federation itself about territory and self-government, which now cut life short. In a newly compact world, there can be no self-contained island continents, uniform and singular from shore to shore. So those ideas have lost traction, and they give nil to the future. And then I say, it's unlucky that an extreme challenge to Australia's national conscience, the refugee crisis, comes at a time when the national conscience is especially feeble and when the way forward is especially dim. Thus pressured, Australia seems to have come to the end of an old, familiar road and answers which have seemed absolute for generations fail. I need to expand a bit on that. And maybe the best way to start is to go back to Federation itself and listen to a small, the small number who were against it or who asked for something rather different from what they got. When the six Australian colonies combined in a federation in 1901, the main driving idea was of self-governing democracy, Australia for the Australians. That reflected Abraham Lincoln's recent declaration on the other side of the Pacific of government of the people, by the people, for the people, but adding on a defensive sense of territory. At that point, such statements of collective self-possession begged the question as to whether or not the populations scattered throughout, the con throughout this continent, at least, had a single will and a single character, that there was as yet a single body of opinion from shore to shore. As it happened, of course, the First World War gave a shortcut answer. Gallipoli and, An and the Anzac legend not only demonstrated a certain kind of character, they also seemed to prove a singularity of character, which was the more basic issue. But if the war seemed to dispose of the more important problems in that respect, it might be only because the more important problems had been very quickly forgotten. Some of the most doubtful commentators on Federation uh, had been women. Historians have started to think again about the large minority of Australians who are opposed to Federation or who are disappointed with it to start with. And for the last 50 years or so, the no voters have looked like traitors to the cause or at least irrelevant to the national story but their doubts need to be taken seriously, especially now that we can manage the retrospect of a century, and especially now when, as I say, the road which has been trodden so far is not, at the very least, well lit for far ahead. The most interesting and forthright opponent to Federation, I believe, was the pioneer feminist Rose Scott. Rose Scott, whom I talk a good deal in volume three about, Rose Scott was, was Australian-born, and she belonged to a family network whose roots in the country went back to the 1820s. Not only Rose Scott herself, but also her father, uncle and brother figure in the Australian Dictionary of Biography. So does her mother's brother, the Australian historian G.W. Rosden, and several cousins, the artists Helena and Harriet Scott and the bibliophile David Scott Mitchell. She was more distantly related to F.L.S. Merriweather, one of the founders of this university. Rose Scott's views and her political engagement came from a deep sense of the civic and cultural a, a, a deep sense of the civic and cultural attachment to Australia focused on the older settled parts of the Hunter Valley and on Sydney. 
And all this is important because of what it says about belonging. Rose Scott's conscience and her ideas about conscience were shaped by her membership of a self-aware civic community two or three generations old, to which the government of Sydney was directly, intimately accountable. They were also shaped by the fact that she was a woman. As a feminist and social reformer, she was concerned to make governments immediately responsive to community life and to ordinary, unarticulated suffering, the voices which could only be heard and answered close up. In Sydney, she had some success, for instance, in her work for women, for women prisoners, freeing them from the daily control of male warders. As a woman in the thick of things, the strings she pulled were very short. In Australia, women campaigning for the right to vote, such as Rose Scott, worked within their own colonies and not as an imagined national community from shore to shore. It's a new article in, historical st in History Australia to that effect. As late as 1909, Vita Goldstein wrote that from a political point of view, Australian women showed, quote, an utter absence of national feeling. Certainly Rose Scott thought of the national project as a scheme to shift the priorities of government away from the sort of issues she put first towards more abstract and morally vacuous matters, to the great contest of nations, to prestige on the international stage and military muscle and display. She thought that federation would move the centre of power beyond the reach of women such as herself and detach it from their main concerns and altogether to dull the moral sensibility of men in power. And she was right. The Australian national government didn't emerge directly from any established civic community. It was deliberately designed to be unaccountable to any particular civic community. It was designed to sit above them all, running by its own rules and its own deliberately gathered expertise. It was not meant to be in touch with complex moral issues, including Aboriginal affairs, which were deliberately left to the states. To start with, that didn't necessarily mean that these were secondary matters, but it did mean that the national government was not set up to manage the more difficult, ongoing aspects of community. The apparently entrenched problems of governments and governance in the Northern Territory and the fumbling, callous management of refugees from an ordinary welfare point of view might suggest that that in-principle incompetence is well ingrained. When Wilberforce invented the national conscience, he did it for a national community which had a single centre, London, a centre of public opinion and a centre of power. Even Oxford and Cambridge were in the centre, in, in some sense tributary to London. Every act of government, in other words, was minutely accountable, more or less. In Australia, a seriously critical, detailed, richly interactive nationwide press has only really emerged during the last 10 or 20 years. All is knit together in a new ways by electronic communication, but maybe print periodicals give a certain definition to national public opinion, which online doesn't. Schwartz Publishing, or Black Ink, has been responsible for the quarterly essay since 2001, the monthly since 2005, and the Saturday paper since 2014. The purpose of the Saturday paper being to question, or quote, to question authority and provoke debate, to round up an issue, to yap and growl, and demand to be better. Guardian Australia arrived in 2013 and has focused a good deal on the question of refugees. And I might mention the Australian Book Review for that matter as it's flourished under Peter Rose has uh, contributed in its own way as well. Whether these things are cause, effect or just symptoms of something bigger, 
they suggest a change in the intensity, including the moral intensity, of Australian public opinion. It may be that all this points to the creation, if ever so gradual, of a nationwide civic community such as Australia has not had before, however much we've shouted about being a nation, and a real foundation for a national conscience. If all this really triggers something new, it must question foundational rules, such as Australia for the Australians, or as more, re or more, as more recently stated, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. That must affect the state of the national conscience, but of course it's not clear how. Men and women now in their 20s and younger, current students and beyond, will do these things in ways entirely different from hitherto. Collective conscience depends on formalities, protocol and structure, on all the structured methodology of belonging. It's an intricate business which takes years to perfect. Social, political and educational structures have to be managed in such a way as to reflect, draw out, reinforce and implement collective conscience. This is surely the essence of civilization. William Wilberforce was a creature of the political structures of his day. He was a university graduate, a member of parliament, a close friend of the prime minister and an instinctively good speaker and organiser. He knew how to work the rules. Rose Scott was thoroughly familiar with the protocols, large and small, social and governmental, of life in upper middle class Sydney. She also understood the importance of formalities, of rules, in shielding conscience, including women's, con women's conscience, as against the bullying power of numbers, which she, which she associated largely with men. She saw bullying, including the sheer weight of masculine authority and officialdom, as the great enemy of conscience. Formalities and convention depend on stable methods of human communication and association. And during the last 25 years, methods of communication and association have changed more quickly and more fundamentally than at any time in human history. And this has serious implications for conscience, including national conscience. One word much in use at present is disintermediation. Disintermediation means cutting out the middleman, especially in buying and selling. Uber is one classic case. But of course it can mean a lot more than that. It's a really important process and it marks and even to some extent explains some of the greatest changes in human history. It deeply affects structure and formality. Disintermediation happens whenever new forms of communication spread through society so as to give people access to areas of knowledge and ideas and to property previously closed to them. It cuts out the traditional mediators of knowledge and ideas. So it gives to human beings with any kind of skill a much larger sense of their own capacity to change their circumstances and of their power to influence the lives of others. The question is, how do they do that while at the same time keeping up a settled sense of right and wrong? And how is that settled sense to be protected and enlarged? Think of the European Renaissance during the 15th and 16th centuries. The Renaissance was both cause and effect of the invention of movable type, of printing. Johannes Gutenberg invented the print printing press in about 1440, and more than 20 million printed volumes had been appeared in Europe by 1500. Also, Wikipedia says. <laughs> when printers made themselves available to readers and writers of all kinds, the European world couldn't help but be changed in fundamental ways. There was commercial 
disintermediation then too, breaking down old trade barriers and giving room to more energetic spirit of individual enterprise. New markets were opened up, technological improvements were added in, and continents and oceans were discovered and explored. Every single change compounded the others. New fluidity of communication meant that power of all sorts was freed from old structures and protocols. Church and government changed fundamentally, and, as with the internet, this reinforced authority as well as breaking it up. National rulers gathered enormous power. Think of England's, England's Henry VIII, a man of deep intelligence and imagination, who pushed at a number of doors only to find them already open, and he increased his power accordingly. With better communication, rulers could speak directly to popular imagination. They could bring religion and other forms of cultural authority under immediate control. The doctrine of the divine right of kings was expanded so that rulers were supposedly accountable only to God. And at the other extreme, common liberties were expanded too or invented wholesale. With the priesthood of all believers, the middlemen of the church were cut out and Christians of all sorts and not just rulers made themselves accountable directly to their God. They qualified themselves to do that by reading. In short, divine right at the top was matched at the bottom by men and women who interpreted the word of God as they liked, by antinomianism. For some of, them, some of them, all moral regulation came to an end because they said, all acts that be are from God. And the echoes of the same thing perhaps in ISIS. This was all about dissolution of structure. The main losers during the Renaissance period were the parish priests and local nobility who stood between supreme authority and the mass of the population. Maybe the main losers now include, once again, the purveyors of knowledge and services, but also the party political structures, which shape ideologies of power and channel public opinion. So this is disintermediation. And the moral implications are serious and also very complicated. Ideas about belonging are seriously upset. But one last suggestion. At the same time, the European Renaissance created a much richer understanding of humanity and of human possibilities. Old ideas about the human condition were upset, but they led to new ones. I don't know whether the same sort of thing is happening now, say, in research into mechanical and animal intelligence, which raises questions as to what is human, and issues of gender can be just as fundamental. The Renaissance, or rather the Reformation, started religion in a new direction. And a small hint of something similar now appears in talk throughout the humanities of a new religious turn, a shift of interest affecting, and I quote, writers who are in fact quite hostile to religion in general or who observe it curiously, handling it with tweezers, others who celebrate the religious impulse while disliking particularist claims. There are writers such as Karen Armstrong who look at religion as a whole from the inside but still critically. And there's this strange phenomena of mindfulness, which seems to echo some of religion's fundamental concerns, but without religion. Religion is being reconsidered from a secular and humane point of view, so as to cast fresh light on its own traditional larger questions, including, I think, the question of conscience and of national conscience. So, I'll finish there. It's a haphazard set of suggestions I've offered, but then it's a haphazard period we're in. It's easy to think that collective conscience is spinning in a vacuum, but that's no doubt because the necessary structures and formalities, the machinery we want, are, yet, are not yet easy to comprehend.
Well, thank you, Alan, for that um, illuminating and cogent uh, lecture and extension of the essay that we are so very proud at uh, ABR to, to publish in our pages. It seems to me that there's a, at least one other essay in this, or possibly even Philippa, a, a, a book uh, on this. Um, uh, and just, just on a personal note, it's been a, a joy, as you can imagine, to work with, with you, uh, Alan, on this um, all these years on, unexpectedly 20 years. Alan, of course, contributes reviews along the way, but to work on such a substantial piece, one of the, I think one of the more substantial pieces that ABR has published in recent years has been a joy. And um, would that all my contributors turned in such impeccable and, and suave, suave prose. I'll put one question to Alan, and then I'm sure you will have more. Alan, I was very interested in your typically empirically acute observation that the national conscience, the term, was never used more commonly than in the early, uh, the first decade, I think, in the years up to the, the Great War. Naively, I would have had it as a, a more recent coinage almost of the 60s or, or, or 70s. Um, you talk in the essay a bit about the, um, the impact of the Great War, as the Great War impacted so, so terribly in, in, in many ways, but also on this, on this movement, on this fervour. I wonder if you could just talk about what the, that turning point of, of the Great War in terms of these, um, these questions. Yeah, thanks. The, it, I know it was used a lot because, once again, we've got trove, and you, through trove you can count the frequency of the term in, as it's used in Australian newspapers. Um, and there's no question you get a real spike during, that, during the period, the decade of the First World War. And that's a, bit, a little bit misleading. I mean, a lot of it is repetitive. A lot of it is a certain reference which is repeated over and over again as particular items are carried from one newspaper to another. But that, that's, uh, that's significant in itself to some extent. But at the same time, I'd have to say it is not the national conscience as I have defined it in this. It's a term which has obviously become familiar and used, but it's not a, not a term with a great deal of moral content to it. In fact, a lot of the time it seems to be um, the term national conscience is more or less synonymous with national consciousness and national self-awareness. Uh, and that continues really in, into the interwar period. Um, a lot of it has to do with an awareness, a, a, a national prudence, if you like, an attempt to build up a national bureaucracy which would do things more efficiently. I can remember one, one example from the 1930s where national conscience, the term is applied to the creation of better machinery for the marketing of, of, of milk, the dairy farmers. There's a, so the, the moral content of it is not sharp. It is not precise. Um, but it is a term which, for some reason, gets into the air and is used um, for a variety of uh, more or less fudgy reasons. Um, I think it's only more recently that it's got to have a, a precise moral content to it. Does anyone have a question for Alan? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Alan, very much. Um, the late uh, Michael Roberts, uh, historian at Macquarie University, when he um, uh, retired from the university, it was said of him that he was the conscience of the department. And everybody tittered nervously. 
and um, um, a great while before one day, a certain Governor General, namely um, Bill Hayden, uh, caught a plane from Brisbane in order to launch Walker's history of uh, Alan Walker, which he called the conscience of the nation. And um, Donald McKay, uh, the uh, Griffith um, anti-drugs campaigner, Bob Bottom, the crime reporter, said he's not really so much a, an anti-drug campaigner, but he just knows the difference between right and wrong. I just wonder what the relationship between individuals like that are and the national conscience. It seems almost as if you've got... They're exceptional. They've got to be a, a minority somehow in order to stand out sufficiently in order to make the conscience understood. One of the things that Bill Hayden said about Walker, which, uh, which struck everybody, was that Bill was professed atheist, but he said that the admirable thing about Alan Walker was his loyalty to the spirit. Maybe it's something, there is something more religious than moral in, uh, in this conscience business. Um, I suppose t one individual operating as the conscience to a community is a bit like um, a person at the, a, a, an archbishop or a cardinal at a royal court who operates as the conscience of the king, I suppose. It's one person who makes a nuisance of themselves or, or is making constant commentary which can or might, might or might not be ignored is quite a different thing from the sort of thing I'm talking about, which is... Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult. One of the really difficult issues in this is how, how widespread does a certain amount of moral feeling need to be before it becomes definable as a national conscience rather than as a group or collective uh, moral understanding. Um, but certainly one individual only um, making judgments occasionally, whether they're listened to or not, is not the sort of national conscience. I'm, I'm defining it specific, very specifically for my own purposes. And that is not the purpose, I suppose. That, uh, that, that's not the definition I'm, I'm interested in for my particular purposes. Um, but it does leave the, the question as to, um, as I say, w how many people have to be involved before it becomes a national conscience. And I suppose I'd get around that by saying, well, it becomes a national conscience when such a large number of people become involved, the government does something about it. Because it's that, as I said in the beginning, it's that, it's that connection with action that sort of coupling to the machine, which, um, which, as far as I'm concerned, is really what I'm talking about. And it may, sorry, it may be that I'm actually using the term in a misleading way, or in a, in a way that's too narrow to be, to be really um, clear. But um, I might have to work on that. Mm. I, I think. Um, um, well, one of the examples you offer is uh, the effectiveness of the. The Gould's League of Bird Lovers, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, even though you qualify your reference to it by saying it's not necessarily a uh, mainstream part of your argument. But I think that illustrates a point that the organizations, you say it's got to be multiple people, not just a single person. Yeah. The organizations are not necessarily going to be churches or governments. Uh, and they're not necessarily going to be determined by nation state boundaries. Uh, they can be, one can get one's sense of identity by feeling primarily a member of Amnesty International mm. or uh, 
Minnesota Frontier, mm. rather than being primarily an Australian citizen. And I'm a little skeptical, therefore, about your reliance on the nation state as the defining uh, entity for morality. If you look around, I think Germany is about the only nation state we can see at the moment that's responding effectively to the refugee crisis. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think I'm saying at any point that it's the defining. What I'm interested in is the way in which government, national governments as centres of power uh, are crucially important to international causes and the way in which national governments can um, reflect the feeling within their, within their moral feeling within their community. I'm by no means saying that the, the nations are the only bodies of, the only way in which you can connect to moral causes. I'm interested in the way in which, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that as distinct from the kind of internationalism of the, throughout the, the second half of the 20th century, or the second two thirds maybe, um, the, there's, there is a lot of room left and maybe a crucial room left for the action of governments reflecting the democratic opinion which is morally focused. If you don't get governments, I mean, it's only, it's government action only. It's the, it's the way in which the national governments um, correspond among, them each other, among themselves which is going to do anything about global warming. It's, uh, it's national governments that uh, um, managing among themselves that's going to do something about regulating the uh, refugee traffic, presumably. Um, so the, the importance of national governments as distinct from international organisations is what I'm trying to, to, trying to focus on. Obviously both are crucially important, but both have moral content. That's, all I'm, that's what I'm saying. I mean, there are all sorts of international groupings which have a moral significance and a moral purpose. And, uh, um, but uh, I'm suggesting that there needs to be some active and effective link between what remains a fundamental body of power, the nation, and the moral, moral dimensions of, uh, of public opinion. Thank you very much, Alan, for the talk. Um, I wonder if the idea that you're trying to get at uh, has some kind of connection with the notion of the personality of the state, uh, which was much discussed in the middle of the 19th century, uh, not least here in Australia. Um, but it ran into the ground, didn't it? Uh, and didn't seem to go anywhere. And that's partly, I think, because uh, the, the, the states that were emerging, um, not least here, uh, lacked continuing coherence on questions of supposedly moral significance. And that the, the idea that you've just been talking about uh, may be not so much related to the quality of the national government uh, in some kind of moral or um, conceptual sense, but rather simply the response to interests that coordinate at a given point of time on particular kinds of issues for reasons altogether unrelated to the actual character of the national, nation state. Is that a clear kind of... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, the idea of the, 
I, mean, I, I talk about, I did mention the, 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 the importance of the idea of the, the personality of the state. And you can see that is very clearly a 19th century understanding. Um, and, uh, and then, as stepping out of that, is very much the, the, the idea of the conscience of the state, as you say, a national character. But all of those really are, as you say, 19th century ideas of 19th century origin, which tend to um, dissipate during the 20th century, perhaps. Um, so, uh, are you suggesting then that what that my argument is, or uh, that my argument is outdated, that there's a kind of, that has elements that are not, it's unrealistic in other words. I mean it's too much to hope for that governments should sense some sort of moral mission and purpose and that, uh, that what we have in connection with, um, well with say the refugees is inevitable. Quite recently, it hasn't been impossible at all. It's, uh, and uh, I, I mentioned in the in the chapter in the article in the Australian Book Review um, the Redfern speech by um, Paul Keating, that, which clearly acknowledges a moral responsibility on the part of the government, on the part of the government as as the heir, as it were, to previous governments and uh, I mean, the, the continuing personality of government and the continuing sense of responsibility of government in a moral from a moral point of view, has been acknowledged as lately as 20 years ago. I don't, it's not entirely outdated, but um, um, if it's, and, and to say that it is outdated, I think, doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's therefore dead and buried and completely gone. I mean, there may be ways of, I'm, in fact, I'm suggesting there may be ways of resurrecting this and giving some sort of, in fact, I'm, I'm suggesting there is something absolutely crucial about reinvesting national governments with moral purpose. Uh, Alan, uh, just over here. Um, in talking about an act of government or state, uh, and so this one question but three components perhaps, how do we understand the differing contributions or expected roles of those who are within the bureaucratic machinery and those who are sort of the people's representatives, so-called. So just those two elements of what we might understand to be government or state in hearing what you're saying about the need for an act for a national conscience. Yeah. And then understanding those two components, what has been the change perhaps in your reflection over time in Australia and where might that be at today? The, the, the contribution of the bureaucratic machinery and the contribution of the people's representatives? I suppose a good deal depends on, a good deal has changed in the way in which uh, bureaucracy works in Australia. I mean, we no longer have people like Nugget Coombs, for instance, these long-term um, dedicated and expert members of the government who, who, can, who have original programs of their own in terms of, uh, of national destiny. The, the bureaucracy at all levels doesn't operate like that anymore. So, I'm not, I wouldn't be hopeful about reinvigorating that sort of machinery very soon, I suppose, but uh, that was a fundamental aspect of the national conscience, that the, the, the bureaucratic infrastructure should 
be, be focused in the same professional way uh, on the on, on large moral causes. Okay, I thought I was being overlooked, actually. Um, it was just Alan saying um, that the, the national government has to be reinvested with the, a national conscience. Aren't we perhaps skipping the core issue, which is the government can't be reinvested with the national conscience until the people are? And for the people to be reinvested in a national conscience, which then results in a government um, um, containing the characteristics you're hoping for, um, they, can, they can only um, lead uh, people they like, that they trust and have faith in, and haven't we been hollowed out from within and that if we've lost the national conscience, isn't the, the structure that's lost it being as much a cultural and intellectual and social one as any political one? I, th I don't think you can put the weight on government and politics. I think it's, it's got to go much deeper. <laughs> I'm very happy to put the weight on government and politics. I, 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 don't, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it has been hollowed out from above. I mean, it's certainly not, that is not, it, it's not a black and white issue, but the, the, the style of leadership is one which hollows out the moral, content, moral purpose of the people. I don't, I mean, a great deal depends on leadership. An enormous amount depends on leadership. If the leadership is concerned only to uh, bring out the worst in the people, then the, the, the worst of the people will be brought out, as far but as that concerned. That means it's got the intellectual and cultural leadership as well as yeah. the political. Yes. That's not important. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you for the talk tonight, and thank you for the essay. And I think you're in uh, courageous and deep waters with a whole lot of post-Christian challenges to uh, to. Uh, the formation of moral values uh, in individuals and in local communities of the kind that Rose Scott talked about and nationally. But looking more generally at Australia as, as a nation in history, this is terribly general, but at the time of Federation there was a great deal of talk about separation from Britain and our individual national character. Mm. But even then, the power of Britain was fundamental to, to the thinking of government. Yeah. Uh, in more recent decades, the power of America and of China is equally weighty in the, in the form of government. I suspect there were really interesting case studies of the comparative courage of New Zealand compared to Australia in many of these issues. I wonder if you've got any views on those thoughts. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's necessary. I mean, just because there's a there's a more powerful government somewhere close by. Uh, I don't know that that necessarily affects the, the sense, uh, or has affected the sense of moral responsibility within particular. I mean, Marrickville has a foreign policy for good. Mar Marrickville has a. I mean, you can. There, it's quite possible to 
something to do with buying and selling um, sweated labour. But the, 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 I'm not sure that the, the, pres the, the overarching authority of Britain or the United States or China or any other large power has uh, need to reflect anything, need to say anything about it. I mean, New Zealand has a much, it seems to me, a, a New Zealand being a smaller country and more, more the government more closely um, accountable to the communities within the main cities, it seems to me that, the, that New Zealand has a more a clearer sense of uh, moral accountability than Australia does. And it has, it's a, it has great powers uh, all around it as well. I don't, is that, does that answer the question? I don't... I, I mean, the fact that Britain and the United States, etc., are there breathing down our necks doesn't... I think they're great inhibitors to, yeah. to, to national courage. Well, they don't help, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alan's been most generous with his time, and I know you want to join me in, in, um, in thanking him. First, just a couple of uh, brief remarks and some thanks. Um, uh, if uh, Alan will be appearing on that excellent radio program Saturday Extra with Geraldine Doog this coming Saturday if you want to hear more. Um, the next ABR Raft um, Fellowship will be advertised early in 2017. Um, so it just falls to me to thank um, uh, Meredith Hall and Sydney Ideas and indeed the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences. Uh, but foremost, the Religious Advancement Foundation Trust and Steve Christie for really making this uh, fellowship and this essay possible. Uh, thanks to my colleagues at uh, New South Publishing. Um, thank you for coming along. And finally, please join me in thanking Ellen Atkinson.